0: Game over! Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all! So say we all! And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. For decades, we've dreamed of traveling beyond our solar system. This fall, we will. We are about to cross a new threshold. Witness the beginning of the Star Trek saga. Starfleet seems to think that we're ready to begin our mission. Don't screw this up. The first captain. Request permission to get underway. Take her out, Mr. Mayweather. The first crew. They have two settings, stun and kill. It will be best not to confuse them. The first trek into the final frontier. Neptune and back in six minutes. A little trouble with the bad guys. You might think about recommending seatbelts when we get home. A new era of discovery is about to begin. Let's go. Enterprise launches Wednesday, September 26th on UPN. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Geek Fest France. My name is Carlos Peron. and today we are going to look at. The history of the future according to Star Trek, specifically the history of space travel. Now, in Star Trek, obviously, the time span is huge in terms of how forward in the future we go. But what we're going to try to look at today is how does Star Trek explain, for example, today or the last 20 years, let's say, or so... Compared to once we reach one of the earliest incarnations of Star Trek and that being Enterprise, the show Enterprise. There's a lot of possible history that took place there that doesn't get very specific in the films or the show but there is enough little crumbs of Information that we find along the way that can kind of help us piece together. How does that work specifically in terms of spaceships? vehicles that you know get us out to space i'm combining that subject also with some of my eagle moss models that i have because that is one of these niche collections that i've had started a while back is the in-between ship designs if you will of that specific period of time in alternative future history then we're going to kind of jump to a movie review for a movie called Countdown that I had never seen before that I was very surprised by. It's a pretty good movie and how it also deals with an alternative history knowing well that in maybe a year or two they will have been proven right or wrong about what a moon landing would look like back in the late 60s right before the real moon landing took place. So let's begin with Star Trek's alternative history of space travel. Television Television is not the truth. Television is an amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. As we watch in the news lately, the commercial space race between Branson and Bezos in terms of their attempt at launching a commercial tourist kind of business of traveling to space, more likely traveling to the atmosphere, to the edge of space, that sort of thing. You know, we're still not taking trips into and, and other moons or planets or anything like that, obviously. But these little baby steps that we're taking, a lot of questions pop up in terms of, wow, we are reaching that stage. We are getting to that level where the commercial aspect of it, the money-making aspect of it, if you will, seems to be taking the lead as opposed to the exploration aspect that we've had so far before with NASA, for example. Granted that NASA, just like many other international uh, players, whether it's the Chinese or the Russians or whoever, a lot of it has to do with national pride, being able to brag about. It. It's kind of like the Olympics. It's it's not so much about the accomplishment; it's about being able to kind of rub it in people's faces. But in the process, even with something as that would be considered selfless as NASA space exploration so far. There's something that we must be able to take away from this in terms of, well, it's, it's kind of getting us you know, further out there in the hopes of being able to explore space in a more active manner that we have so far. And up to now, you know, the, the peak of at least American space exploration was limited to the space shuttle up until a couple years ago when they just completely stopped the projects altogether. Different countries were delivering their payloads uh, into either space stations or um, launching satellites with traditional rockets, the, the type of rockets that we were more used to, you know, back in the 60s and, and 70s before the, the space shuttle started to kind of substitute those. Well, recently with Branson and Bezos, both their companies jockeying for the commercial market of space tourism if you will where if you have access to a couple of million dollars you will be able to go up there and hang out at the at you know at, at that, that that level that 50 to 65 mile level where you're technically officially in space you're waitless for a few minutes or a few seconds or something like that uh, however it, it does become just like a lot of things the luxury box of uh, Tourism—it's the type of thing you hear about, you see it on TV, but there's no way in hell, under these conditions, you will ever ever get to experience it yourself. Who knows? Maybe this is the beginning of it. Maybe in ten years or fifteen years, it might cost maybe a two thousand dollars to do it, or it might be a couple of million. <laughs> you never know what direction this will go. But without going down that rabbit hole of the morality the the reasoning for it you know the old argument of couldn't money be spent in more humanitarian ways yes true but we don't want to go that way today today we want to explore how historically now this has happened we are now dealing in a commercial conquest of space if you will a commercial entry into space one day we might be dealing in companies going out there looking for natural resources we've seen a ton of movies particularly alien comes to mind where you have the the company the weyland yutani company who's out there solely for profit making purposes they're not explorers they're there to turn a profit make a dime that kind of thing well with this latest launch between these two bazillionaires we got to see two different approaches at going to space and one of them i believe the branson one is something that we're kind of a little more used to seeing and that was the traditional craft looking vehicle you know a cockpit and the wings and you know the body of the plane this particular ship gets launched uh, from the belly i believe it's attached to a bigger plane, and the plane releases that ship, where then it's able to ignite its rockets and go even higher. Then that plane glides down, you could kind of say similar to a uh, space shuttle kind of deal, where it kind of glides down and it lands on a uh, runway. The Bezos model is more of a traditional rocket. The rocket goes up, it detaches itself, it gets to a certain point, the cockpit detaches itself from its booster rockets i believe it detaches itself from a booster or it continues with the booster i'm not entirely sure i don't remember but it does detach itself from the cockpit the the cockpit then stays up there for a little bit the body of the rocket comes down and lands with more rocket fuel this is one of the uh The big things about this particular technology is that these rockets are being reused. They're not just falling into the ocean. They are landing unharmed. And then the cockpit also comes down. And with uh, parachutes, it also lands. And I believe it might have its own rockets too to slow it down even more. So two different complete methods of doing this. What could be considered an older method and a newer method, but they're both actively being used right now. What does this have to do with genre? Well, Star Trek. I have a collection of Eagle Moss ships and with one of the different ways of collecting, you know, where you have to set up your own rules and that's how I do it. You cannot be a completist. You could if you have unlimited funding. Of course you can be a completist. Just tell them to send you one of everything. Fine. Wonderful. I can't do that. My Eagle Moss collection always has some kind of weird rule to it and one of the particular rules that i've been following lately has to do with the history of space flight or more like it, the star trek history of space flight technically we've seen some historic ships in terms of yes the phoenix was the first warp capable ship that we saw in first contact the first enterprise looking enterprise let's put it that way because we can't even use the word enterprise but the first y looking enterprise was from the show enterprise but there's a whole range of history that every now and then star trek will explore briefly where it has to introduce a little more information having to do with how we got to that in other words How did we go from the time that we're in right now, the post-shuttle time, to the, let's say, Enterprise from the show Enterprise? So, what I've been doing is I've been buying some of those ships that have appeared on the show in any shape or form. Now, granted, I probably don't have all of them. I'm pretty sure I probably missed one here or there. But I want to go over seven of them today that... Are very prominent and give you a at least of a glimpse of of how they looked at how this history would have taken place. A lot of it has to do with the uh, the opening credits of the show Enterprise because it's funny Enterprise while not everybody's favorite series and definitely not my favorite but I think it has just about one of the best openings across the board that whole history of Exploration montage that they do in the beginning. I loved it. Again, ironically, it had one of the worst musical numbers. Not just in any Star Trek show, but just any show period. It was just horrible. I hated that opening song, and I know later on they made it a more of a. They took the lyrics out and they made it more of a musical kind of thi- thing. But no, it was just it. was it's, it's just too bad that it was so bad. But the visuals, the visuals, I absolutely love. They were great, and in those visuals, you do get to see a couple of what could be considered canon. Advancements in spaceflight that might or might not exactly make it to the show. But even before we get to that, there is one ship that plays a very prominent role in the history of Star Trek before we get to Star Trek times. And this one goes all the way back even to the original series. Now, I'm not talking about, for example, episodes where they find a satellite or a space capsule or a pod or something where there's, like, survivors or anything like that. I'm talking about, like, full-blown ships. So, if you go back to Spacey, the classic, you know, pre-Wrath of Khan, (laughs) origin of Wrath of Khan episode, it shows you a ship that is a combination of... I guess old and modern, you know, this is again, you're talking about this is the 60s. So they, they, they work with what they have. And the Botany Bay, which is Khan's ship is supposed to be an earth ship that he used to escape earth. There's a whole EU world around Khan. Uh, There's a couple of books and tells you the whole history, but more or less he escapes earth on a rocket. That's all you need to know. The ship looks like uh, a rocket, but it does have a section where it has these pods attached to him, like cargo pods, which is also where, you know, all his people are hiding in cryogenic sleep. If you look at the ship sideways, it kind of resembles a submarine. It's got this very thin, long, long, long uh, section with a fin in the top, like a shark fin kind of deal, just like a submarine, with little fins in the back. So it would make a great submarine, to tell you the truth as far as the model goes. However, what's interesting about this ship, you know, it does appear in, the, in in that Space seat episode. Great, wonderful. Doesn't do much in terms of its features uh, because it's just the purpose of the ship is to bring you these characters so you can interact with them. But at a later Voyager episode, uh, "Futures End, I think it was called, something like that, we are time traveling and we're in the 90s. Ironically, this is the time where the eugenics wars are supposed to be taking place. And granted, the episode doesn't deal with that at all. So you kind of don't talk about it because it's either not happening or they don't want to talk about it. Who cares? That's not the point. But somebody was aware that the time was happening, that 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 you were going to have some canon problems, I think. And one of the things they did is on a, uh, on a on a couple of scenes, there's a character called Rain Robinson, played by, by Sarah Silverman, the comedian. A- and in her office, she has a model of what looks like to be the Botany Bay in its launch pad. Or a version of a ship of that model, let's say. It might not necessarily be the Botany Bay, but it's exactly like the Botany Bay. It's got a, all its components, except it's kind of standing up straight with a whole bunch of propellant rockets all around it and there's also a shot of her sitting on her workstation i guess and on a file cabinet there's a photo of what looks like to be the botany bay taking off with you know plume of uh, fire underneath and it's you know launching in the middle of a launch again we don't know if it is the botany bay but it is exactly that model of a ship so i guess we are led to Understand that in the Star Trek world, they are still using rockets in the 90s. You know, there were, I don't think I saw any word of space shuttles or anything like that. But who cares? <laughs> the point is that it's there. I would add that the Eagle Moss version of the Botany Pay that I do own is primarily based on the CGI version when they remastered a lot of the special effects for Star Trek. DVD and uh, television syndication. Therefore, it has a lot more detail, a lot more weathering. And this goes in general for a lot of the Eagle Moss products, specifically the books uh, and the, uh, the booklets that come with these ships. A lot of the um, artwork and display, you know, pictures of a lot of these ships are based on original CGI renderings. Of course, not when you are dealing with something like from a movie where they might have only used models and the movie was never remastered in a way where the model was then replaced by a CGI creation. But in this particular case, and in many of the ones we're going to be talking about, they're all coming from CGI. Now, when we jump over to enterprise specifically again that opening of enterprise and they're showing us all these different milestones i guess in space of exploration which is the the whole montage of the opening the first ship we see is something that kind of looks like a space shuttle in other words it's got the definitely the colors of a space shuttle it's got the white top with the black underneath and the black nose and the black lining on some of the wings but it's a different kind of design. It's it's completely different. And and from what I understand, John Eaves was asked to come in and try to come up with some concepts for what this montage was going to look like. You know, how can you show the evolution of spaceships, you know, to get you from the 90s or the 2000s, if you will, you know, the late 90s all the way to the time of... Enterprise. So, Eaves and Jim Martin, another illustrator, they kind of went back and forth uh, with different concepts that they had. And one of the concepts that Eves came up with, and he apparently did it by researching either NASA or the Edwards Air Force Base, which he had some friends there too that also kind of work in aerospace, And at the time, you know, before the space shuttle projects were scrubbed, there were some designs of what could come next. What could the next uh, generation of space shuttle-like ships would look like? And what he came up with was the OV-165. Now, OV was also already the designation for space shuttles. I believe OV-101 was the first one. So they kind of theorized on, you know, this far in advance in the future, which they don't specify the year. We're up to the 165s models, I guess. One little bit of trivia having to do with the the first space shuttle, even though it was supposed to be a training ship, not necessarily a ship that was going to go out into space, was called the Constitution. But before they unveiled it, you know, before they had its public, you know, showing of that ship... Star Trek fans wrote a campaign. They did a, a mail-in campaign or a call-in campaign or something like that to, so they could change the name to Enterprise. And it did, and they did. The first official space shuttle is the Enterprise. Just a little weird, little bit of trivia. Again, this isn't a space fearing ship. This is only a training ship. But it was the first one that was shown. And I believe the entire most of the cast of, of Star Trek was there for the unveiling and everything. So that's it's really cool that they were able to do that. So anyway, going back to this ship, this is the ship that was selected to be that first transitional ship. Again, it has not appeared on any of the episodes other than the opening of the show. The Eagle Moss version is very good. I mean, it's just exactly what you would imagine, you know, the next step of space shuttles would be. It has a similar design. It has a a much fatter, wider, but not necessarily taller section. so that for example, You could hold a lot more compartments, cargo, whatever it is that you're bringing up, there's a lot more of it. And again, you're still dealing in traditional technology, I believe. This is not warp drive anything. Even though in the back, the funny part is that I don't see any rockets. So I'm not sure exactly what kind of technology they're using for this ship. Maybe they didn't think of the rear of the ship as much as they did later on with some of the other ones but the design if you look at some of the pictures they also had the word united states on it but then for the show for the design of the cgi model i guess they took out the word united states and just put the model number ov-165 this way i guess they don't kind of pigeonhole themselves into saying that the united states designation already didn't exist at this point who knows why but it's not there the next ship up is the Phoenix, which is a more known ship, if you will, based on the fact that it's, I guess, one of the stars of First Contact. I mean, the the whole movie is centered around uh, more or less that flight. Eagle Moss put together a great looking ship. The wings, or or the um, the nacelles, if you will, they are already in the expanded mode. If you guys remember, what you have there is a rocket. That once it reaches space, certain parts open up to reveal the nacelles, to unfold the nacelles, thereby being able to activate them. Well, the model doesn't have any moving parts. The, The Eagle Moss model that I'm holding here doesn't have the moving parts, but the wings are already in that deployable or deployed stage. It's a good model. It shows a lot of detail. My God, it's got a lot of detail. I remember in the movie even, that part of the thing is that it has to get to space and then in a more traditional rocket way, it detaches certain parts that is no longer using. I believe it might've detached the booster rocket, for example, and some of the paneling starts to kind of fly off to reveal the inside compartments, the nacelles, for example, all that stuff. But this is also a very important ship, obviously, in the history of Star Trek, because it's your first warp-capable vehicle. What's cool about this one is that, you know, at every point, you know, you have the option of going two different routes. You have the option of going on the rocket route or on the spaceship route. And here, for this film, they decided to go the rocket route. Which kind of brings it back a little bit. You know, it's kind of like old school kind of technology. Now, granted, you're dealing with the theme of the movie also has to do with being a post-apocalyptic kind of thing where major wars have just ended and, and technology is kind of starting to catch up on itself. And they use a nuclear weapon delivery system, if you will, a rocket, in order to do this test flight they're repurposing, (laughs) you know, a a weapon and turn it into an exploration vessel, if you will. So it is part of the story that that's the way it would be. You know, using a space shuttle, let's say, for example, wouldn't that work too well. Up next, you have the SS Emmet. Well, the SS Emmet, once again, when you're dealing with where does it show up, it does not. It, It was only made for the purpose of that opening sequence. And you only see it from the back for just a second or two. And what's different about this ship is that it's a shape that will kind of influence a few more future ships. And remember, keep in mind that with ships like this one, the purpose of it is to get us closer and closer to a traditional enterprise-looking design. You know, big saucer, nacelles. Deflector dish, you know what I mean? It's trying to get us to that stage. Well, the thing about the Emmet is that it has nothing (laughs) to do with the Phoenix. The only thing that is similar is the fact that it does have nacelles at the tips of the wings. But the body of the ship looks a little bit more like that OV-165 we talked about. It's a spaceship-y looking kind of design, very flat It looks like it's all like steel covered, you know, gray, metal. It no longer uses the space shuttle colors. It goes for straight gray, you know, industrial gray. And you could see different panels of different shape, uh, of different sizes all over the ship, giving you and kind of starting to get you used to that, that at least the Enterprise from the television show Enterprise, that look of that ship, that it was made out of, You know, hulls, different chunks, (laughs) different big square metal pieces put together in order to do that. But once again, we never saw this ship in an episode, but in the opening, you do see it from the rear. I think it's flying over the moon or something. But what makes it important or what, what, what helps it kind of bridge the gap of this fake history star trek history is that it also has rocket engines in the back so this is a ship that has some kind of a nacelle propulsion probably very basic but it also has rocket engines in the back to supplement or to use on a different environment we're not dealing with thrusters we're not dealing with anything like that yet you know those those alternative ways of propelling a ship that are not necessarily you know crazy warp You can't, you know, in Star Trek, it's not just like warp or nothing. You got warp to go fast and, you know, long distance, and then you have thrusters to go close, slow, you know, regular speed. Well, this ship is the combination of those two things. The introduction of a secondary means of propelling the ship, a combination, like I said, of those two different technologies. Next up, Archer's toy ship. Well, with Archer's toy ship, this is a really different kind of episode in a way, very ambitious if you think about it. The model that I'm looking at here, the Eagle Moss model for Archer's toy ship, and this is referring to Jonathan Archer. In Enterprise, uh, there's a very direct connection, you know, the fact that Archer is piloting the first official Enterprise vessel of that nature, And I put a big asterisk on that. And his father was also somebody that worked with Cochrane, And he also helped develop, you know, the technology that got us from Warp 1, you know, on the way to Warp 2. And we're not going to see Warp 2 until somewhere in Archer's earlier career. But there's an episode where he's remembering when he was a, a young boy... Building a remote-controlled ship toy, and the toy itself borrows a lot of the past and the present of that time. Uh, the past, I mean, the colors of the ship. The ship looks a lot like the Emmet in terms of that design, that that kind of arrowhead with the two warp nacelles. But the color is all space shuttle (laughs) it's a it's a whitish and gray on top and it's all black in the bottom so i think it is speculated that he could have painted it any color he wanted it's not necessarily the color of this ship if it did exist at that time that's another thing it has never been confirmed that this particular model of a ship would have been a real ship in other words he's building a model of something that exists at that time, it's possible that this is just an Emmet type of ship and he decided to paint it differently. So it is a completely unreal ship, but it is such a cool little design. And, and you can kind of see how, you know, if you're of that time, if you're of that era, this is the kind of ship that could have been theorized about. I, I, again, I love the fact that it has such a throwback. Uh, Now, what's also interesting uh, and cool is that the engines it uses, the nacelles, not the rear. Well, actually, yeah, the rear. The rear and the front, they look a lot like Kirk's Enterprise. There's a lot of that style of of the the particular cylinder and the particular tip, you know, the the orangey-reddish kind of part of it. There's a lot of that in there. So... It's really cool how they kind of blended a lot of things into this completely mythical ship that probably didn't exist. Again, we're talking about a show here. <laughs> None of this exists. But I, I like I really liked it. And it's kind of like it's funny because like in the back, again, we're not I'm not seeing any rockets anymore. This looks like to be thrusters in the back. But it's kind of neat how they were able to combine, I guess, in a In a child's imagination or in a toy building imagination, all of these different things all rolled into one ship. Up next, we have a ship that we've talked about in the past already. And we talked about this ship as far as the history of ships named Enterprise. I'm talking about the USS Enterprise XCV-330. This is that ring ship that I talked to you guys about a long time ago. It looks nothing like anything you've ever seen before. It does not fit in any shape or form with what we're talking about now in terms of design. It doesn't fit with most about anything that's ever been done. There have been a few ring... I think the Vulcans at some point, I forget which movie, they have some sort of a ring ship. It's like a ring, and then the, the center of the ship goes through it, something like that. But forget that. This ship only exists because of star trek the motion picture and for a brief moment in star trek the motion picture there's a scene where you see pictures on the wall like paintings or something of the evolution of enterprises and you have this and you have yeah you, know, you have a, a sea ship and you have the shuttle and then you have this thing and then you have the modern enterprise and and There is just very little way of kind of retconning, even though they do retcon it in a shape or form. But they try to stay away from this as much as possible because it just does not fit. So for these purposes, we don't know exactly what this ship is. We don't know how it fits with these other ships because, like I said, it doesn't seem to have any of the traditional things that these ships would have. I imagine it has an A cell that runs in the back by itself, but the design is completely alien when it comes to the rest of these ships. So even though this is a historical ship, as far as we're concerned, it's shown up, because it has shown up as uh, cameos or Easter eggs on some of the movies. So you can't just dismiss it, it's there. But for our discussion, it really shouldn't be counted, as far as I'm concerned. Even though I, uh, you know, you you could think of it as a, maybe it's an exploration ship, maybe it's a cargo ship, maybe it's a luxury ship, I don't know. Uh, Maybe it's a science vessel. It is not these vessels we're talking about now. Next up, the NX Alpha. The NX Alpha has a a very (laughs) long history, if you will, of design in terms of John Eves, once again, was put in charge of this ship. At first, his designs were nothing like this. It was more of a traditional, again, spaceship-y looking ship. He at one point even thought of making it, ironically, we just talked about this, a ship that travels underneath or on top of another ship and then it's released in the air. Because they wanted some kind of unusual way of launching this ship. And that was going to be one of the ways to do it, was to you know, fly off or fly under another ship. At some point they decided, you know what, we have the prop of the cockpit of the Phoenix, which was a fully built prop. And I guess to save money and to save time, they decided, you know what, this ship has to be something that looks like the tip of the Phoenix. The story that they're telling at the time is Archer, Jonathan Archer, once again, he is a test pilot and he's helping develop, you know, this warp 2 capable ship and they're having all kinds of problems and you know the ship that they try out is this one so because they were going to reuse that cockpit design again what eaves did is that he kind of followed through with the same design as the phoenix as far as the body goes except it doesn't have as many exposed parts you got a huge rocket in the back you got a long cylindrical you know shape that leads to the cockpit. But what he did was for the nacelles, instead of having them folded out once he gets to space, the nacelles are already deployed in a more solid wing type, almost like a jet type of formation. It's very, I guess you can call it buck rogery <laughs> or flash cordney in terms of how uh, simple it is. But it has two really cool things that I think make it even cooler as far as star trek goes one thing is that the wings in order to get it in and out of the hangar, are foldable so the wings fold instead of folding in so that the nacelles get inside the wings fold up so that the wing itself folds up like a kind of like an accordion. They can just fold them up so that the nacelles get closer to the body and they can squeeze the ship into the hangar. Then they take it out, unfold them down again, and then you have your fully retracted uh, wings. Really, really, really different. You you know, you don't see that every day. Again, it's it's a takeoff on the retractable nacelles, but instead of retracting in, they're folding up or down. Really cool. The other thing was that they decided that this rocket was not going to just take off like a normal rocket in terms of standing up and having all these other rockets around it to help it propel itself up You know, with additional booster rockets or that sort of thing. They didn't want to do a booster rocket type of scenario. What they came up with was this ship, the NX Alpha, would run along a magnetic horizontal track, magnetic. So I don't even think it's touching the ground. And the track goes straight, 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 straight. And at a certain point, it angles upwards, and it points towards space. And that's where you get enough speed for it to then angle and go up. And that was, that's what gives it its boom, its boost. And then you turn on the engines, you know, the extra engines or whatever, and boom, it's up into space. So that's how they, uh, they figure out, how is this one different than the other ones? Again, cool little Eagle Moss representation of that ship. The nacelles are, with with every ship that we talk about, the nacelles are getting closer and closer to what we're used to on Enterprise all the way to the original series, you know, Star Trek. We're still dealing in this steel color design because this is the design, the one that will get us all the way to Enterprise. The final ship I have here is what's called the Warp Delta. What's notable about the Warp Delta is, first of all, it looks a lot like the Emmett it is that arrowhead shape it looks more futuristic it actually has a bridge bubble if you will built into the hull the hulls are no longer just these solid little hulls now there's a slightly raised area where the bridge is which is something you will also start to see later on you know on other versions of 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 the enterprises for example or other ships you know of the federation Plus, this is also a ship that is supposed to have been armed with weapons, which is something that we had not dealt with yet. By the time we get to this ship, you know, we're dealing with episodes that have to do with attacks on Earth, whether it's Klingons or something else. But these are the type of ships that are defending Earth, I guess, traditional, maybe short range ships. Once again, we've already reached the the level of Enterprise-looking ships at this moment, but this is such an obvious advancement or next-generation ship to the Emmet that this is where it brings us. We could have completely avoided this ship and skipped it, but the fact that it is so closely related to the Emmet... It, it, it gives you exactly what would happen when you go from one model to the next, when you upgrade, when you add extra features, when you give it a little more oomph. The panel itself is very full of ridges, and, and you can see the different metal sections. Again, it's all made to bridge that gap you know, between what we knew of Star Trek and what we know of our time at this moment. It kind of tries to bring it all together, but there are so many other places that could be explored. Even the XCV three thirty that I I love that ship, and it is such a weirdly odd ship. There's so many potentials for stories that could be written that could be incorporated into it. A lot of these ships. It's funny how they make it into uh, Easter eggs on episodes of some of these shows. Uh, They come back to them. The history is kind of hidden in the background. There's pictures, there's models, stuff like that that shows up on some of these episodes. But at least here they give you, you know, a little bit of something where you can try to piece those things together. And there is somebody always in charge in Star Trek whose job is to kind of keep all this in line, to keep the timeline, to keep the history so that... Potentially, future riders don't kind of ride themselves into a corner or contradict themselves. They still do a lot of times. But this is a great example. Um, As far as if you're collecting stuff, these ships are wonderful. Uh, They're wonderfully made. They're not that expensive. They're in the lower range of the Eagle Moss. Uh, All of these are probably within the 20. Well, no, that's not true. Maybe I would say 15 to 30. Thirty dollar range, more or less, Um, and I I really hope that we get to see more of situations where they can explore. You know, the, the the points in history that they haven't explored because there are certain sections they just don't want to mess with because it's so current to now that again you don't want to kind of contradict themselves i think they got super lucky the fact that we are right now in a place where we have both rockets and ships kind of still in the mix and that is the direction that they were kind of hoping that they would go even though the space shuttle concept has gone out the window i don't know maybe at some point they will reintroduce in reality i'm talking about Some kind of a ship, some kind of a re-entry vehicle that could be reused plenty of times, lands you know on an airstrip, you know, that kind of stuff. Who knows? But these are great representations of this fictional history of Star Trek. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York, you're a number one, you will not laugh, you will not cry! You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That is horn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. Well, speaking of alternative... <laughs> Sci-fi space history. I want to give you guys a little bonus film review. Very recently, in one of those late night, I've fallen into the Netflix, Amazon, uh, Peacock, Tubi a pit of streaming services, I found a movie called Countdown. And the only thing really that attracted me to it, because... When you get to a certain point, and you're, I'm sure you're very familiar with, with, with streaming services, you're going through a certain section, whether it's sci-fi, horror, whatever, and you start scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, and the names start to become less familiar. So anyway, I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling, and nothing is making sense, and then I see the picture of, a, of an astronaut. Okay, interesting. And then I could barely see the name. It says James Khan and I'm like, well, wait a minute. James Kahn is an astronaut? You know, th- this this might be worth something. It's not just, it might just not be another silly, crazy movie. So I, I kind of look for the description of the film, and it's like, astronaut and the moon are trying to land on the moon, and, and Robert Duvall. I'm like, Robert Duvall and James Connor, are you kidding me? These two guys from from Godfather a couple years later, and, and before this, they acted together. So that kind of piqued my interest. And just in general, you know, I, I like space films and. Now, what was interesting about this film is that because it was made in 68, or at least it came out in 68, that means they probably made it a year earlier. That's before the moon landing. So this is a take on what a moon landing would be like. So there was an additional interest in, oh, I wonder if they get it right. You know, I wonder if they got it right in the movie or how, you know, would it be very cheesy or would it be pretty accurate? But anyway, the movie is about... The space program, you know, the goal is to land on the moon and you have this crew that's been, you know, training for that landing. The captain is Robert Duvall and James Kahn is one of his crew members that they're all been training. And all of a sudden they have to stop training because apparently the Russians have fast tracked their program and they're And it sounds like they're going to be arriving at the moon before the U.S. Remember, this is the space race we're talking about. So. At this moment, they're all trying to figure out, well, what happens next? What do we do? And the Americans figure, all right, well, what we can do is we can kind of fast track our program or our arm of the program. So it's only one person that gets to go up. We can do a single man uh, vehicle and maybe get there earlier. And then they learn that the Russians are sending uh, not a military person, but a civilian, like a scientist to be the leader of that expedition. So the Americans have to then kind of match that because they don't, you know, it's a game they're playing. So all of a sudden Robert Duval's character is asked to step aside and James Khan to be that lead person because Duval is the military guy, Khan is more of the non-military guy. So automatically there's a new kind of friction created in the story because Duval wants to get in there no matter what. And Khan is kind of like, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. But, I, you know, I, I still want to go on this mission. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing I can do. So Duval starts to kind of train him reluctantly because he's he's still very upset. And all through the training, he's kind of half hoping that the guy would just quit. This way he can get back on top and be the lead guy. It's interesting because James Khan looks younger. I mean, it's 1967, 68 or whatever. So if you're used to seeing James Caan now, or at least at his prime, to, which to me would be like Godfather or, or you know, late 70s, that kind of time frame. But even for this movie, he looks even younger than Godfather to me. It's really funny. Robert Duvall, on the other hand, he is the older of the two astronauts, but he always seems to look older older he always seems to be very thinning hair which makes him look even older so it's really funny how to me Khan looked younger than in Godfather but Duval looks just as <laughs> just as old as he did in, in Godfather and this film it's it's so strange there are some actors that always look a certain age no matter when you look at them they all, they either always look young or they always look old you know they can go 30 40 years and they kind of get stuck Uh, looking a certain age. But anyway, so they go through all this training, and they train and train and train and train, and, and, you know, there's a lot of problems happening, and training is difficult, and James Khan is having issues, you know, he's not 100% all the time, he's, you know, he's learning, and he's, you know, trying to pick up all these skills and that sort of thing, and his marriage is suffering too, you know, his wife now... Another thing to to kind of remember about this film is that, in a way, it's a transitional kind of film. It's going from the 60s to the 70s. And let me first mention, the director is Robert Altman, who was a super famous director. After this film, he went on to do MASH, The Long Goodbye, Nashville, you know, gigantic films for him. The Player, a little more of my time of film, but his resume is incredible. But this was one of his original films. And one of the interesting little tidbits that I found out after the fact is that he was actually fired from this film. Story goes from one of these documentaries of his life that I was just watching a little clip from is that one of the things that he is kind of famous for or something that he pushed more and more in his films that eventually people got kind of used to and started adopting it themselves. It's a more modern, realistic filmmaking style. If you think of the 50s and even the 60s and then the transition that took place into the 70s with the independent movement and the, the more realistic-looking and sounding films as opposed to the, hey, how you doing? Hey, we're going to the store, blah, 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 blah. You know, all these, what are do you doing? You know, all this kind of dialogue, uh, delivery that is kind of old-timey when you watch these old-timey films, one of Altman's things was overlapping dialogue, having characters talking at the same time, interrupting each other, and that sort of thing that now is like a norm. It's like, yeah, that's how people talk. People interrupt each other. Sentences overlap and that kind of thing. But back then, apparently, it was like a big no-no. And according to him, when he was done shooting... He got a call from Warner Brothers, the president of Warner Brothers, uh, told him he was fired. (laughs) Basically, he hated all the dailies they were watching and how everybody kind of overlapped each other on their dialogue. And he kind of lost control of the film at that point. You know, Warner Brothers, I I assume at that point, then, you know, cut the film themselves and all that kind of stuff. Because originally, I believe he had last cut approval of the film. But I think he might have lost it in the process. Again, this was his first studio film, but that is one of the things that I do notice in the film when I was watching it, is that there are some elements that are very old-timey, and there are some elements that seem a little more modern. It's, it's really fantastic. There's a couple of additional cast members that are very notable. Ted Knight. Ted Knight, you know, the famous comedic actor, from Harry Tyler Moore and all these other shows, he plays kind of like the television communications representative and he is kind of like the charming guy that's supposed to kind of like smooth things over and there's a scene where there's a party and he's acting kind of slightly drunkish which is a it's almost like a staple, I think, of Ted Knight's characters that he's used later on in his life. Uh, in terms of, you know, I, I always think of Ted Knight. To me personally, he's more Caddyshack than than uh, <laughs> some of the television shows. But I did watch him. And I was it Too Close for Comfort? I think it was. Uh, he was that, that was uh, an '80s show that he was on. Another staple of of '60s t- movies that this has is a kind of pseudo musical number, and not so much uh, people dancing and that sort of thing, but. Somebody grabs a guitar and starts to play it. And everybody's like, yeah, kind of jamming to it. And it's like, oh, my God, this feels so weird. It feels like one of those cheesy 50s, like, uh, you know, beach surfing uh, movies where th- this movie just stops because somebody decides they're going to sing a song and everybody is enthralled with that song. Well, there's a couple of scenes in this film where they kind of do that a little bit. And it's just kind of like, ooh, it just felt weird. The film had the cooperation of NASA to shoot and to also use a lot of their stock footage, so they do a really good job incorporating a lot of the training sequences. Being able to use a, a real jet and a, and a real runway, you know, for the filming and stuff like that. So it's interesting how back then even there, there was this collaboration, you know, with 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 such high up entities that would allow you to make your film look even more realistic by not just having to do everything, you know, on a soundstage or special effects, which is something in this film suffers a little bit from is that, I guess because of the budget, they couldn't go out, you know, crazy special effects for that time. Again, remember, we're talking late 60s. This is before 2001 level special effects. There are some effects later on, but they're kind of like okay special effects. They're not really that great, but they're okay. There's a scene in a restaurant where also people start to, somebody singing. Again, it kind of takes you out. There's also some traditional effects that are used. For example, when it's the big day of the launch, they have the people inside and the astronaut getting into the ship. There's a lot of like star filters and slightly hazy looking filter on it to give you this kind of ethereal. It almost looks like the man's going to his death. That's how emotional that whole sequence is, because it's like you get this feeling that everybody's having doubts about this. Every single person is having doubts. But what's happening also is that around that time of the launch, word comes in that the Russians have already landed. They've lost communication. They can't get in touch with them, but they've already arrived. So the mission is kind of like an afterthought. So everybody's kind of feeling down about it. And like I said, you do get this kind of dread feel about it. The sequence is that that particular sequence, is also a very quiet sequence. Not a lot of sound effects, not a lot of music. It's a little kind of hollow. But maybe it's done that, that way on purpose to kind of emphasize that point of of kind of dread, of the fact that, oops, we're too late, and I don't think this guy's going to be able to pull this mission off, again, based on what we've been shown so far. Now, the plan is supposed to be that by sending a single person out there and having them just land they had already sent ahead of time a uh, uh, like a live-in capsule, uh, an area where a single astronaut could live for a prolonged period of time. So the the logic behind this alternative plan is to get your person there, and then when the next mission comes, when there are actual you know astronauts that are gonna be landing, like two or three of them or whatever, they would then pick up this guy and bring him back home. This is again. This is just a race to be there first. It's, it's that that whole race thing, uh, having to do with, you know, the winner is the guy who gets there first in one piece. Basically, there's a scene also that that I found odd, and I wasn't sure if it was it was accurate or not. And that is, there's a scene where uh, they're traveling. I think from, uh, I think it's from Florida to Texas or something, and the seats on the plane seem to have controls on the headsets of the seats. And, you know, people can actually tune into certain things and and adjust knobs and that sort of thing on the seat, on the headrests. I have never seen that before. Again, I'm not, I am haven't done the research to see if that's accurate or not. But that, that's something that, you know, automatically I was like, ooh, what's that? Another actor I recognized in that very, very quick scene, uh, he plays like a like an engineer or something like that in, in Houston. Uh, it's Mike Farrell, you know, the guy from MASH. It's listed as an uncredited heart. So yeah, this was really super early in his career <laughs> where he's getting these little tiny roles and I'm like, wait a minute, I know that guy. That guy looks familiar. There's plenty of problems that are going on while the mission is happening in terms of electrical issues and communication issues and all kinds of stuff. They do try to recreate the waitlist effect and there's a scene where a flashlight starts to kind of float and it is so easy to see the wires and it's like, oh man, granted years later, not too much later, I mean, you talk about 2001, again, <laughs> like two years later, they made such advancements in special effects. But something tells me even if 2001 had come out that same year, this film wouldn't have had the budget for something to create that, to, to, to be able to, to do a realistic weightless effect like that. But hey, you know what? You get what you get, uh, and, and it, but it works. One of the big dramatic moments of the film is... They're getting close to either landing or aborting the mission. He either has to see this little red light on the surface of the moon that tells him that's where to land because that's where that habitat is located. And we get to a point where he does not see it. And he still wants to land. And he basically lies and says, no, I see it. I'm going down. I'm going down. So he goes down. He does land. But he's not exactly sure where he's landed. You know, he's landed in a situation where he's not exactly where he is supposed to have landed. And he gets to the point where he doesn't know what to do at this point. I mean, he's, he's there. He arrived somewhat safely. Problem is that he's going to run out of oxygen sooner or later. So he kind of goes through the motions of, okay, well, you know what? I'm here. Even though he can't communicate because there's, again, he's having more of these communication issues. He's going to do the thing that he's supposed to do. So he goes out there and, you know, walks on the moon and then technically this is your first american walking on the moon but you get all the also this feeling that nobody's ever going to know about it and it'll be forgotten or unknown for god knows how long uh, because he can't communicate so he decides he's gonna just walk he's gonna start walking in some direction and see what's out there you know he's going to explore for whatever time he has left of oxygen and during his walk what he finds is they crashed Russian lander and everybody's dead so it looks as if the Russians did get there first but they all died you know in the process of trying to land the ship is pretty much wrecked so in a very kind of symbolic way you kind of see him retrieve I think a, a Russian flag and he I'm not sure if he buries the, the bodies or, or or if he just creates like a, a, a stone monument, you know, putting stones together around it or something like that. I'm not entirely sure, but he does put a Russian and an American flag together, you know, sprawled out there. I guess to kind of signify that they both kind of got there, but they both kind of failed at their missions because the Russians all died on impact and the American never got to live more or less as a result of what just happened. And that could have been the end of the movie. That could have been a very downbeat end of the movie. As I mentioned before, the special effects are a little rough. There's lots of matte lines whenever you see a horizon and that kind of stuff. And at that point, after he's put the flags up and everything, he kind of seems to be coming to the realization that this probably was a big mistake and that he only has... Just very little time left because of the oxygen. And he decides he's just gonna keep walking. He's gonna walk until he's done walking, you know, use up whatever's left of his oxygen. And he pulls out this little, it's like a little rubber mouse with a little string. And this goes back to an earlier thing with his son. His son had this little toy mouse, and he wanted I think he said at one point if he if he could go to the moon with him. And as he's getting into the ship, I think Robert Duvall or somebody hands him, hey, this is from your son. He you know, put it with your supplies because he, you know, he wanted you to have this. So he took it. So he takes the little mouse and he's kind of I think he he's either thinking or talking to himself as to okay, well, what direction should I go? So he kind of spins the little mouse on the string. Again, no gravity. Forget it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Don't worry about that. So for whatever reason, the the mouse kind of spins a little bit and stops at a certain point. And that's the direction he starts walking. And as the movie is coming to an end, he's walking, walking, running out of air. People in Houston, they're all depressed. They're like, yeah, by this point, I think we are pretty much uh, certain that he pretty much done uh, air-wise. And as he's walking and walking and, and almost like maybe a minute or two left of air in the distance, he sees a red light. And then you see him walking towards that habitat with the little red light on top of it. Kind of like a happy ending. I think we can kind of deduce that he made it. I mean, I don't think you want to think that he kind of dropped dead, you know, 10 feet from that habitat area. <laughs> so, it's a last minute, oh my God, I can't believe he made it. It's an interesting premise. It's it's different. It's a twist. I mean, the whole thing is a twist. The fact that they would do that. How accurate of a plan or a reasonable a plan probably not very really reasonable. I don't know. You I'm sure you can have plenty of scientists and I think there were some some reviews back then again, I'm not sure if it's from scientists or from uh, just plain simple movie reviewers that that plan would never work. They could never get a person there that fast, you know, even if it's a single person, you know, everything is planned so much in advance that you couldn't just all of a sudden fast track something like that. And yeah, the the kind of things that they go through Very dramatic. But this was a very surprising film for me in terms of it's something I never knew existed. It kept me in suspense, I was convinced this was going to be a downer in terms of this wasn't going to work. And the purpose of this film was going to be almost a cautionary tale of, well, maybe going to the moon is not such a great idea. But they did kind of pull it out in terms of say, of bringing you back into the, the lighter side. Because again, this could have been a very dark, dark movie by the time you get to the end. The things that are happening in his reaction and his issues in terms of malfunctions and, and how he reacts to them and how frustrated he is and all that other stuff. I'm also glad that Robert Duvall's character doesn't turn into a complete jerk because at first he was kind of a little bit of a jerk of how upset he was, but then little by little, he's a little more willing to kind of go along with him. And even when he's in the most perilous situation, he remains his friend and he remains supportive. He doesn't just kind of like say, screw it, I'm done with this or anything like that. But if you are searching for these kind of films, I am glad every now and then when I find a surprise, not only a surprise from a new film that, you know, it's great when you get it, but this is a film that's always been there and I completely overlooked it or never really heard much about it. So I am going to try to look a little more in terms of this particular genre of of space exploration or, or that sort of thing where you, especially when you have known actors. I mean, James connor and Robert Duvall, they're, they're like heavy, heavy, heavy hitters in terms of acting chops, and I strongly recommend it. And it's a nice little companion piece, again, when you're dealing with what I was just talking about before, with alternative histories. So, yeah, this is an alternative history of the moon landing, before the moon landing, obviously, of what people thought could or might happen. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We started off with looking at the... ...possible alternative histories that Trek deals with when it comes to the history of space travel. And specifically, as I mentioned in the open, how we get to Star Trek Enterprise from something like today. Where are all those steps that we have never seen yet in much detail to kind of get us there? And the excellent representative models or ships that the Eagle Moss Company has been able to put out... ...to help us fill in those gaps... Again, one of my little side collections is those specific ships. Then we looked at the movie Countdown, which is a movie I had never heard of before, ran into it by accident, and how it also tries to do something similar, and that is to predict the future, thereby the future only being one or two years away, in what the moon landing would look like. Very surprising movie. Uh, It went in a direction at certain points that I wasn't assuming it was gonna go, Pretty surprising, pretty happy with the ending, you know, traditional kind of ending. And, uh, you know, interesting little facts about the backstory of the making of the film and the people involved. Very, very good. If you're into space exploration movies from a realistic kind of point of view, this one is definitely one you guys should take a look at. So on behalf of everybody here, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye bye, everybody. This is the control room for the rocket that will take a man to the moon. A man is going to the moon. A man will land on the moon. Scenes like this will make the biggest news of our time. It's coming. It's certain. It will be soon. The countdown has started. Going to automatic sequence. We're giving you four seconds to start lifting after commit. Otherwise, abort. Stand by, Lee. I can have help in a minute. Leave him alone. He'll be alone up there. Ten. Nine. Can't you spin the nine? No, no, not all nine, no. Eight. He'll either panic or dump the mission. i proved it. Seven. Thirty-second mark. What's that thermostat? Coming to the thirty-second mark. There's something wrong well, with that... Five. Now hold it now. Six. Now, inside the shelter, our life support systems to maintain the astronaut for two months. Five. Listen, I have something to say. Let's go! Hey! Come on! Four. Engine start. A 10 G's. Eight Vibration eight building. Four. Three. I spent years thinking of myself taking that trip. Two. Body heat rate increasing. Heart rate one two zero. One. Shaking badly. I don't, uh, can't, can't tell if she's going to hold together. Hang on. Fire. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com. Or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about. Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone. Copyright 2021. <laughs> this broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long.